according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again in Proverbs 22. We got a good start on it last week and want to get another good shot at it this week. Remember, uh, we're taking the break from Proverbs on Wednesday mornings. In fact, uh, we've got the whole month of April that we'll be off from Wednesday mornings. So um, anyway, just keep track of your emails and watch for future announcements when we do resume. We're also considering resuming the ladies' prayer time as well. So pray about that and uh, consider if uh, when we do resume this class in May that perhaps we'll go, remember back when we used to have a 9 a.m. ladies' prayer meeting and I used to have a 9 a.m. informal training class with the men in training and then uh, do that for an hour ahead of the 10 o'clock Proverbs class. So if uh, the time comes to resume that, I look forward to that as well. All right, Proverbs 22, a good name is more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. The rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is the maker of them all. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. And this is uh, kind of a verse that's been haunting me. I want to make the right application. <laughs> I want to be prudent. I don't want to be naive. Uh, if there's something that's a problem and we have to take action, then we do, and not just go on blindly and assume that everything is going to work out. Because the Lord said, well, you saw it. What would you do about it? So anyway, pray about that too. Before we do start though, let's take a moment for silent prayer and call upon our Father and His faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your truth. We thank You for Your Word. We ask for Your protection against anyone that come in here and bring us to harm. We thank You in faith. Uh, ask You for Your Faithfulness once again to bless our time of study. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Can you close those doors, please? Ed, close those doors, please. Okay. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to do. All these distractions. <clears throat> thank you. All right. With chapter 22, there's a significant section break that we're going to observe. This really is the, the beginning of the end for the original book of Proverbs. The original book of Proverbs, that is the, cano the canonical book of Proverbs. Understand, when, when the Holy Spirit inspires the Scriptures, He's inspiring the authors to record what they record in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Greek Scriptures, but then the process of canonizing those inspired Scriptures the process of taking all the God-breathed and inspired psalms and compiling them in order 1 through 151, or 1 through 150, I'm sorry, Septuagint has 151, um, putting them in that order, putting them in the five books of psalms as they are. You know, the psalms are, are organized into five books of psalms. That's a separate process that has to be studied and, and factored in to your study on canonicity, to your study on on inspiration and all the details that go into that. Likewise with Proverbs. Um, all of these Proverbs weren't written in this order, but they were placed in this order. The first nine chapters as a collection, chapters 10 through 24 as a collection, and there's even a sub-collection there 
that we want to understand. And really, it's probably 10.1 through 22.16. That, that, that chunk, if you will, was the canonical book of Proverbs uh, at the time of Solomon's death, the primary Solomonic connection, uh, collection. Also, I would add to that, I think that the first nine chapters were also by the time of Solomon's death, that they were recognized as being canonical. Um, but anyway, the decision was made to put those up front, the decision, uh, 1 through 9 up front, and then to put 10, 1 through 22, 16 after that. And then uh, what follows in 22.17 through uh, the end of chapter 24, uh, the sayings of wisdom or the, uh, the 30 sayings. That, and we'll, we'll deal with that when we get to verse 17. But when it says, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, that appears to be another section heading that we have. And it's, some, some would label it the words of the wise. And uh, the NIV in particular is one Bible that does that. Uh, but several Bibles will put pericope headings in there between verse 16 and 17 and, and se- segment off that portion of the chapter in any event. Um, the textual break in Proverbs 22:17 is followed by more obvious textual breaks in uh, 24:23, 25:1, and 31:1. Now let's just pick up, I know we looked at these last week, but doesn't hurt to see them again. And really the one that we've had prior to this. So let's just see how the, just remind yourself, Proverbs 1.1 says the Proverbs of Solomon. The son of David, king of Israel. And then it gives several purposes for why you want to study this book. To know wisdom and instruction, to discern the sayings of understanding, to receive instruction and wise behavior. So if you, if you dedicate yourself to the book of Proverbs, to the Mishle Shlomo, the, the Proverbs of Solomon, you're going to have these benefits. And, and Proverbs 1.1 is a great uh, title verse for the book. But then uh, in, in Proverbs 10.1, it's like it starts all over again. It says the Proverbs of Solomon. A wise son makes a father glad. And it starts to, it really moves more to the third person now at this point. A wise son makes a father glad. And we're talking about a wise son in the third person. He knows who he is. His father knows who he is. His mother knows who he is. But a foolish son is a grief to his mother. And so starting in chapter 10, we switch to more of a third person uh, presentation of, of wisdom literature. Whereas in the first nine chapters, it was very much in the second person. It was my son this, my son that. Listen to your father. Do not neglect your mother's teaching. So we have the transition here very clearly in Proverbs 10.1. The, um, the one that's not as obvious is 22.17 because if you're just reading in a New American Standard Bible, it just moves from verse 16 to verse 17. There might be a little bit of a gap there. There's a bold-faced number uh, giving a new paragraph heading, but not really marking it as a section heading, not giving it a, a pericope heading as a section heading there. Proverbs 24.23, these also are the sayings of the wise. Okay, that clearly is a marker in the text. That also is taking everything after verse 23 and following down to the end of the chapter, taking those as additional proverbs that probably weren't Solomon's authorship, but he collected them, he brought them from other sources, he adapted them from other places. Okay, remember uh, when we um, talk about all the proverbs of Solomon. 
Solomon wrote, um, I think it's in 1 Kings 4. Um, let's see. <clears throat> Clicked the wrong thing. Anyway, there's a verse in 1 Kings 4 that says, Solomon wrote hundreds of Psalms and Proverbs, and, and let me find this real quick. I know we're going to be off for a month, and I want, you, I want us to not lose this. All right, 1 Kings 4.32. I said that, didn't I? I said I think it's in 1 Kings chapter 4. All right, I get credit for that? All right. I know it had been more impressive if I just memorized it off the top of my head, but. All right. So let's look at this. And, and I want to highlight, too, a couple other things, and then we'll get back to where we were and uh, pick up from there. All right, so we talk about Solomon. Let me click off all these other things. All right, here we go. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind. Three different things. Wisdom, discernment, breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed all the wisdom of the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. So we have other cultures that surrounded Israel that were noteworthy for their wisdom. And the Bible talks about those. Noteworthy for their wisdom in terms of Secular wisdom, in terms of political wisdom, in terms of the wisdom of this age, the wisdom of the world, other things. Of course, God gives the spiritual wisdom from the revealed Word of God and, and this understanding. Um, men of the East, like, like Job, for example, or there's others that, um, in, uh, of the Edomites and the Ishmaelites that were known for their wisdom. Keep those other cultures in mind because it's going to impact how we approach uh, Proverbs 24, how we approach Proverbs 30 and 31. Who was Lemuel anyway? We're going to talk about these things. So his wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, wiser than Ethan the Ezrahite, Heman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahol, and his fame was known through all the surrounding nations. Now, we don't know who these guys are, but they did at the time. And, and they were well known of their, of their day. And for Solomon to be put in that category and beyond that category is noteworthy. He also spoke 3,000 Proverbs. That's more than we have in this book. Okay? That's more than we have in the 31 chapters of Proverbs, even if we assign all of those chapters to Solomon himself, which we know um, some of them were not. Also his songs were 1,005. See, that's why I couldn't find Psalms. It was songs. Were 1,005. He spoke, and there's only two in the book of Psalms that, that are attributed to, to, Solomon, to Solomon's authorship. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He spoke also of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. So he's got secular wisdom as well. He's got scientific wisdom as well in the realms of uh, plants and animals. Men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. 
and I expect they wanted the scientific advancements and achievements. Uh, maybe they weren't so excited about the, the biblical understanding or the spiritual wisdom. Maybe some of them did. Who knows? The Queen of Sheba and maybe others that were, that were positive to Yahweh and, and His Word and aspects there. Anyway, so this is, this is good to keep in mind. And I know we went through it seven years ago when we started this Proverbs series, but it probably need to refresh our minds on that more frequently than that so that uh, we don't lose track. All right, so don't do that. And we're not going to do that. Here we go. Let's look at some of these other markers then. So, um, like I say, in Proverbs twenty-two seventeen, this uh, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise is thought to be another such marker. And there's, there's, it's not universally agreed to. And, and even among Hebrew scholars that prefer to put a break there and some that, no, let's not put a break there. Let's keep the Solomonic section all the way down further than this. But in any event, there also appear to be uh, 30 of these sayings. They get into fights there too when they try to versify them and, and break down exactly what 1 through 30 are um, in any event. If you're reading an NIV Bible or a, a new uh, King James Bible, you're going to see that pericope heading there and you're going to see those things listed out. The 30 sayings of the wise. Anyway, and then uh, 24, 23. These also are sayings of the wise. So there's the, the Proverbs that Solomon wrote, but then there's also the wise sayings that he collected because he collected wisdom from various other places around, around there. We get to 25.1. These also are the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. So this wasn't part of the original canon, but they were his. He wrote them in his lifetime, but not until the days of Hezekiah. We're talking a couple hundred years later. In the days of Hezekiah that they get transcribed and they get added to the canon. They get, they get added. They become chapters 25 through 29, okay? And uh, the other collections as we see them there. All right, and then, thir- uh, of course, Augur in verse 30 and Lemuel in, verse, in uh, chapter 31. We don't know who these guys are. The words of Augur, the son of Jacob, furious fights, arguments. The, the rabbis had all these legends and traditions, and some argue that, well, this is just code. Augur was a code for Solomon, and Jacob was a code for David. But there's no agreement to that, and there's other uh, equally esteemed Hebrew views on this. Um, and instead of calling them an oracle, uh, that may actually reference an Arabian territory. It might reference an Arabian locality. It probably does, actually. Likewise in Proverbs 31, Lemuel, the words of King Lemuel. And um, is Lemuel a name? Is it just an expression? These are the words that God spoke. Um, The oracle, is it really an oracle? Or again, is it the town? Is Lemuel the king of Massah? Okay, or do we translate it as oracle and, and take it from there? And, and this is not just work that we're doing as church age believers, pastor teachers in the church age. The rabbis have been debating this going back before the church even existed. The, the rabbis were debating this, and you can read about it in the Talmud, you can read about it in the Mishnah and the other debates that they had. And the ways that this gets translated in the Septuagint are also big clues that uh, there was not universal agreement for, uh, 
for the order that these things were put in when they were added to the canon, when they were canonized for us in, uh, in the Hebrew canon. All right. Hope that helps. And uh, just at least you're exposed to the concept, you're exposed to the idea. I think um, it is interesting if you, if, you, if you do read the Septuagint, you're going to find some of the uh, versification is slightly different. You're going to find some of the order is different. Chapter 30 gets added to the end of chapter 24, by the way, and the first part of chapter 31 gets added at the end of chapter 24, by the way. It's not until you get to verse 10 then with a virtuous woman that the Septuagint creates a whole new chapter and puts it at the end of the book and calls it chapter 29, I think, something like that. Anyway, versification differences. Your favorite verse from chapter 22, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's not in the Septuagint. It's missing. Okay? It goes from, from, uh, from you know, verse 5 to verse 7, and then it goes to verse 8, and then it has an 8a before you get to verse 9, and then it has a 9a before you get to verse 10. It's got a couple of extra verses in there. Uh, the Septuagint is a, is a curious product, and it's useful for us. As it's not God-breathed and inspired, but it's useful for us as we relate to what the original Hebrew said, not what the amended Hebrew said through the years. All right. If there's any questions on that, we can take them this morning or you can save them for tonight. All right. So all of this is to say, by December 31st, if we don't get any further than 2216, I think we can get further than that. But there's only, we're, we're running out of Wednesdays in this year before we put this class on hold for the Through the Bible year. And I'm trying to keep an eye on that and chart, chart our break. All right. The chapter begins with integrity and grace, which are both better than material wealth. And uh, when you have this better than statement, we've had the better than statements before. We've had wisdom is better than gold. And very frequently, wisdom is the one that gets highlighted as being better than material wealth. In this case, though, it's grace. It's the favor. It's the hain. And that's uh, better than silver and gold. But a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. And of course, the name is, is highly theological because the name speaks of God himself, his name. The fact that he calls Israel as a covenant nation and that he reveals himself to them by name, that he gives them the significance of Yahweh as a memorial name to the I am existence that God is, is powerful. And so studying the principles of name, the idea of Shem in the Hebrew like Ham, Shem, and Japheth, shame or Shem, this is the word for name and it's used almost a thousand times, 857 times throughout the Old Testament. And it's more than just a label. It speaks to reputation. It speaks to integrity. It, it touches on a very um, key element of the angelic conflict. Because remember, Satan took a vow that he would be like the Most High God. And uh, uh, when you besmirch the name of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, that's a big deal. And so we, we do these studies and we work our way through, and we almost made it through this slide last week, but the... Um, the, uh, the, especially in Genesis where the, the name of the Lord is so vital as we understand it there, Exodus 9.16, Joshua 9.9, 1 Samuel, 
as, uh, as uh, Goliath is taunting the living God and uh, the recognition that the name of God is, is uh, significant. You cannot besmirch that name. If you name the name of the Lord, you are to ex- abstain from all wickedness. And there's, there's uh, the issues there. See, it's more than just, I say it's more than just sin. I don't want to minimize sin. But when we do sin, when we when kind of all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but when you and I do it, as those that have named the name of the Lord, as those that have been redeemed by the, the, the blood of Jesus Christ, it is, it is, it is so much worse. It, the accountability is so much stricter. We're trampling underfoot the, the Son of God. We're regarding as unclean the blood of the covenant by which we are saved. We're in, uh, insulting the Spirit of grace. And, and the, the warning passages in Hebrews demonstrate how dire it is for us in our priesthood to, um, to abandon the truth of God's Word and just live in the flagrant um, carnality that, uh, that some of us choose to live under. Anyway, the name of the Lord. And so we worked our way through, I think, most of these passages. Um, at least we got through, I believe we got through the first Samuel passages. So let's pick up with Second Samuel. That's the Davidic covenant. That's where we got to um, lock in on this name. And then we'll, uh, we'll move on to grace. We'll cover, um, we'll cover uh, shame and chen this morning. All right, so 2 Samuel 7, 9. And all these verses in chapter 7, verse 9, verse 13, verse 23, verse 26, all these verses in 2 Samuel 7, we're centering on the Davidic covenant. We're centering on the promises that God is making with David. All right, now therefore, let's see. This is the chapter where it starts. David's looking around and says, I feel bad. I live in such a nice house and the tent of the Lord is in tatters, right? And uh, he's looking around and he says, uh, I want to build a house for the Lord. So the king says to Nathan the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. And Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in your mind for the Lord is with you. Now here's two believers on doctrine and they have fellowship with each other. And David says, you know what, I want to build a, a, a more glorious place for the ark. And, and uh, Nathan's like, great, great idea. The Lord is with you. And then he gets the brakes put on that night when the Lord comes to him in a dream. That same night, um, the, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go, say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? I, for I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. And uh, so he's not asking for a house, and it's too soon. The plan of God calls for David's son to build the house. So it's the right idea, just the wrong time. And, and I like the fact that this is in the Bible, so we can learn from this, that we can recognize that sometimes we do have these great ideas. Nothing wrong with the idea. The idea is a fine idea. It's just too soon, too early. It's the wrong time, wrong time, wrong place, wrong person. In the will of God, he's got a design, and his design is better than ours. So, therefore you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name. Okay? So this is significant. God doesn't do this with just anybody. 
God himself maintains his own name. And then when he calls out certain people like Abraham, we saw in the Abrahamic covenant that he's going to make a name for Abraham. That's the element of the Abrahamic covenant we usually ignore. or We forget about it. We, we don't know what it's about, so we skip over it. We get to the I will bless those who bless you part and curse those who curse you part. I will make you a great nation part. We pay attention to all those things and we, we overlook what I think is the, the most significant thing there, the I will make you a great name. Same thing with David here. Like the names of the great men who are on the earth. Now, hadn't happened yet. Okay? It hasn't happened yet. You read world history today and they'll talk about Alexander the Great or they'll talk about Julius Caesar, they'll talk about William the Conqueror. I mean, they, they've got a whole list of great men of, of a world history and David's not on that list. In fact, most secular historians view David as mythological because they don't trust any history from the Bible and, and, uh, they, and, and until until, you know, even if you find coins that have David's name on inscriptions, they still say, well, it's a myth. No amount of evidence is going to convince them because they hate God, they hate God's Word. Anyway, I will also appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. They've got an eternal destiny. God's not done with Israel. We get down to verse... Um, Verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your father. See, David's just human. He's going to die someday. But his son will be raised up after him. He's going to have a, a descendant that's going to be the eternal king. I will raise up your seed after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. And this is a marvelous prophecy because he starts to speak in, in tandem. He starts to speak in twin because he has a, an initial fulfillment related to Solomon, the, the, the very first son of David there that follows him as king. But then he has the greater son, Jesus, of course, that uh, builds the eternal house. He should build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, talking about Solomon or talking about Jesus? It's actually both. I will be a father to him, he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will corrupt him with the rod of men and the strokes of the son of men. Now that can't be Jesus. When did Jesus commit iniquity? But, that, but we do know about Solomon. We know about Solomon and his tragic end. We know about all the women. We know about the, I think he died the sin unto death. All right. Your house, your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. It's an eternal covenant. God can't break it or God's a liar. If God's a liar, then we're not saved. And even down to um, verses 23 and 26 of the same chapter. So David is praying and David is celebrating. David's excited. He's not pouting like many of us would do. He's not saying, oh, I wanted to build God a temple and he wouldn't let me and I'll show him and you know, I'm not going to do anything for him now. Fine, I'll take my ball and go home. Okay? No, David celebrates. He says, who am I, O Lord God? Then what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And, and he's praising that his son gets to build a temple and he's celebrating and he's worshiping. What nation on earth is like your people Israel whom God went to redeem for himself as a people and to make a name for himself. Do we skip over that? I mean, we get it. We get that Israel is his people. 
He's making them a people. They have an eternal destiny, but part of that is to make a name for Himself and to do a great thing for you and awesome things for your land before your people whom you have redeemed for yourself from Egypt, from nations and their gods. This is Israel, the Jewish people. I'm starting to hate it more and more when when I see these memes and people are quoting, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and blah, 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 as if the United States of America has anything to do with that promise. It's Israel. The best we might claim is a secondary application and blessing by association, and we got better verses to claim for that. All right? Anyway, but people are posting as if it's a as if it's a, a, a promise, as if it's uh, America's guaranteed recovery. We're not guaranteed recovery at all. Anyway, my people, my name. Verse 26 is the last. Uh, now therefore, O Lord God, the word you have spoken concerning your servant and his house, confirm it forever and do as you have spoken, that your name may be magnified forever by saying the Lord of hosts is God over Israel. May the house of your servant David be established before you. See, replacement theology is ripping these verses out of the Bible and acting like they're not even there. They're diminishing the glorified name of the Lord as the God of Israel. May your name may be magnified forever by saying, Yahweh Tzivayoth, the Lord of hosts, is God over Israel. And they want to take that all away. All right. Anyway, David certainly understood it, and uh, by the end of his life and the um, transition from David to Solomon, this issue was the big deal. So in 1 Kings 1, 47, the king's servants came to bless our Lord King David, saying, may your God make the name of Solomon better than your name and his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. Solomon was a greater king in terms of the extent of his reign, his wealth, his dominion. What, what David conquered by, by military might was then expanded by Solomon's wisdom. And it reached its geographic peak in the Old Testament under Solomon. It was, it was shrunk immediately after Solomon's death. Because, you know, ten tribes disappeared, you know, broke off to the north. And, and then it was just shrinking ever after. Then uh, 431. Oops. We looked at this earlier. He was wiser than all men. See, I should have just uh, waited. We would have gotten to this anyway. So God gave Solomon this great wisdom. Surpassed all the wisdom of the sons of the east, all the wisdom of Egypt. Wiser than all the men, than Ethan, the Ezraite, Heman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol. And his shame, his name, his reputation, his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. All right, now let's look at the ones in Proverbs. Nope. Proverbs 10, 7. This is actually the fourth time that we've encountered Shem in the, the book of Proverbs. And uh, there's going to be two more that both come up in chapter 30. But in Proverbs 10, 7, you might re remember, the memory of the righteous is blessed, but the name of the wicked will rot. 
And this uh, marvelous parallelism in the poetry here, paralleling memory with name. Okay? So you think about the legacy, you think about the heritage, you think about the impact you have in your lifetime and beyond your lifetime. When, uh, when uh, you know, we talked about uh, Carol, uh, uh, the, the pastor's wife in Medford, Carol Page just went to heaven and Dorothy Braun is in heaven and all these, uh, the, the, the memory of their name, the legacy that they left behind the impact that they can continue to have, they can still bear fruit even though they're in heaven because the, the, the work that they did while they were here still continues to bear fruit, still continues to have impact. But the name of the wicked will rot. And so it's more than just a label. It's more than just what we call you. You know, what's in a name? <laughs> okay? To quote some Shakespeare here. What's in a name? Everything, as far as God's concerned. Because the naming speaks to the character, the reputation, the integrity, the essence. When God uh, blessed Adam and allowed Adam to name the animals, that's a tremendous privilege. And then Adam named the woman, and then Adam gave a personal name to the woman, and he named her Eve. Anyway, stay tuned for that. Um, Proverbs 18.10 The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runs into it and is safe. The name of the Lord. It says character, reputation, integrity, and the name that we name when we belong to Him. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. Hey, you know, I know where I belong. <laughs> is there, there's chaos all around me? Well, guess where I, guess where I belong? Guess where I'm going to go hide for refuge? Because I name the name of the Lord. The righteous runs into it and is safe. There is yet to be a believer that ever was disappointed because he placed his faith in God. God is always faithful. 21-24 Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names. Remember this? A, a trinity of names for this wicked guy who acts with insolent pride. That was just last chapter. 21-24 Proud, haughty, scoffer are his names. He who acts with insolent pride. We talked about that and the reference it has to not only Satan, but also everyone that follows Satan in uh, that, the, the world's wisdom. When we get to chapter 30, the words of Augur, we're going to have two more uses. Proverbs 30 and verse 4. Remember this, Augur, the son of Jacob, the oracle, the man declares to Ithiel, to Ithiel and to Ukul, whoever they are, surely I am more stupid than any man, and I do not have the understanding of a man, neither have I learned wisdom. Nor do I have the knowledge of the Holy One. Who, and, and so if this guy is an, an Arabic uh, wise man, a sage from the, the descendants of Ishmael, um, it's, it's curious that he uses this title, the Holy One. In the references that Gentiles would have to El Elyon, the God Most High, or to the God of Holiness. Like, uh, it's just it's a curious study to me to see how Gentiles call uh, God, the creator God of the universe, but the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Wow. Okay. 
This takes you into some amazing realms of wisdom when you're talking about the begetter and the begotten one. The one that was be- the alpha moment begotten one. What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Anyway, stay tuned for that. Uh, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. I think that's Eloah there. Yeah. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words or He will reprove you and you will be proved a liar. Two things I ask of you. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep deception and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is my portion that I not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? We want contentment. We don't want to be too rich. We don't want to be too poor. Or that I be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. See, beyond the sin and the consequences is the, is the truth that as we commit these sins, as we live contrary to God's wisdom, we actually profane His name. We bring discredit upon the name of the Lord because we name the name of the Lord. Profaning the name of my God. So stay tuned. I think uh, chapter 30 is marvelous and when we see the uh, Arabian origin of of that chapter, when we see the Arabian origin of chapter 31 uh, with Lemuel and uh, the the more I look into it, the less and less I see of of Solomon. It's like um, I mentioned on Sunday, there's so many legends about Rome. Uh, but yeah, they were created by the Roman Catholic Church trying to boost their prestige. And they're not really, they're, they're less credible, they're less believable because we can, we can readily you know, perceive uh, a bias in trying to promote those myths. Likewise with Solomon. Uh, the, the legends that, well, it's just code for Solomon, there's an element of skepticism in there because we, we can readily see why there would be a, a desire to try to credit Solomon with things that, that aren't his. Whereas something that's less credible, an Arabian source for, uh, for Augur and for Lemuel, that's less credible. That's like, why are we going to claim it was women that saw the empty tomb on Easter, on, on Resurrection Sunday? I mean, who would believe that? That's not credible. And so it, the fact that it's less credible makes it more likely to be true as being recorded in the canon of Scripture. If that makes any sense. Anyway, there's, a, there's a, an apologetic of embarrassment that comes into, into play when things that would otherwise be less desirable get recorded mostly because they're true. <laughs> That's why they're recorded that way in, uh, in these things. Alright. And so we want to have a name. We want to have a name. A good name is to be desired. I want to have a name. I want to, I want to have, I don't want, um, you know, when, when, when Pastor Bob is spoken of, or when Austin Bible Church is spoken of, uh, when, when believers around the country, around the world, when they mention, oh yeah, Pastor Bob, okay, do they say, he's that nut job, he's that kook, or do they say, man, he teaches the Word of God. Or Austin Bible Church, man, those saints, they're hungry for doctrine. They, they, they want the Word of God. I mean, what is our name? What is our reputation? What is our integrity? And, um, you know, this is, this is something. And we've got we to gotta discuss it. We had a visitor a month ago that um, had some background with 
a lot of bracket-type doctrinal pastors, and um, it wasn't flattering. And he named off four names that all had problems and left the ministry and, and different issues. And, uh, and so, I, well, yeah, so yeah, I can give you two more if you want them. <laughs> you know, it's a short list. You just gave a short list. There's a longer list. Um, and it's sad, okay? And pastors are sinners, and, and these, these men fail, and, and whatever, and, but by the grace of God, you know. But we don't paint an entire movement based upon one or two or three or four or six you start to get to a dozen or so, and I'm starting to wonder. And this man that wrote to me was starting to wonder. You know, are, do people, do they, do they come to Baraka-style doctrinal Bible churches for the right reasons, the wrong reasons? Do they avoid us for the wrong reasons, or the right reasons? So, man, I'd love to come to your church, but man, I really got burned in this other, in this other uh, place. I get that. I understand that. Because the name and the reputation is significant. And it's to be desired more than great wealth. And so whatever the, the assets are that the kids are going to fight over after we're gone, <laughs> you know, as they divide up the, the, uh, the estate, I'd much rather that uh, they have the, the name, the reputation, the, the legacy. Okay? And there's a, there's a Marvelous opportunity to do that. Anyway. I keep checking my email. There's a Gilliam, a Pastor Gilliam that I used to know years ago. He's with the Lord now. But um, I think I, I think I met his son this week. And so I sent him an email saying, you know, was this your dad years ago? And he hasn't replied yet, so we'll find out. Let's talk about grace. Grace, chen, C-H-E-N. It's a good guttural sound on the C-H. And uh, so, chen. Um, Seventy uses in the Old Testament. Strong's Concordance, Numbers 2580. And it speaks of favor. It speaks of grace. You don't deserve it. You haven't earned it. But somebody is showing you favor. Somebody is, 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 uh, is, is gracing you out. Okay, and it's uh, kind of blends kindness and favor, and it, it's more than the New Testament charis. It, it really encompasses a lot of things that that charis has and more. Some of the elements of of even chesed get rolled into chen in uh, in these things. Of course, it's more better to give than to receive, and so uh, the grace that we can give is always better than the grace that we can receive. But if we can do both, then it's a win-win. If we can give grace and somebody receives grace uh, in, in fellowship and for the glory of Jesus Christ, then it's a win-win both times. Our Savior is doubly um, glorified. In any event, I'd rather have God's grace than all the riches in, uh, in the world because favor is better than silver or gold. Now the contrast that we see is the only place that we see in Proverbs or anywhere that chen is preferable to silver or gold. Normally, we're told that it's wisdom that's better than silver or gold. And uh, that's what we're accustomed to seeing. We've seen it before. In fact, it was kind of a dominant theme in uh, Proverbs 3, 13 through 15. How blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. And this is why it kills me that doctrine is so ho-hum to most believers today. They could take it or leave it. They're not hungry for anything and they don't realize the wealth that they're passing up. 
You know, if we put rubies on every seat in this or, you know, emeralds or some kind of precious gem, put, uh, you know, put a 10-ounce bar of gold on here and uh, gold per ounce is getting up there these days. But, um, you know, and we're offering stuff that's going to be eternal. Her profit is better than the profit of silver. Her gain is better than fine gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire compares with her. Nothing you desire compares with her. So when uh, folks decide that they're going to do something else rather than come to Bible class and learn, you know, well, what is, you, I guess you found something that's more desirable. <laughs> Nothing you desire compares with her. What are you comparing and how did you make that comparison? Anyway, Psalm 19.10 The judgments of the Lord. I love this in Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. Isn't that just beautiful? The poetry, the put that to music. There's a song there as we celebrate God's law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, judgments. They are righteous all together. They are more desirable. So all that long list, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. Yep, man, we need the word of God. And uh, the psalmist on the death march knew this as well. Psalm 119.72 The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In verse 127 Therefore I love your commandments. What's the therefore? Yeah, be surety for your servant for good. Do not let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. You ever waited so long in prayer that you went blind looking for it, looking for the Lord? You just Your eyes have failed, but you keep looking. Deal with your servant according to your loving kindness and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for they have broken your law. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, above five, fine gold. You know, this is curious to me. If this truly is the death march, and I think it is. I mean, that's how Colonel Thiem taught it. and It's a curious theory anyway. But it is time for the Lord to act. He's essentially admitting that the captivity of Babylon is appropriate. That he'd warned them, he gave them time, that, that he's being carried away either to Babylon or Assyria, whichever captivity this was. And uh, yeah, it's time for the Lord to act. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold. Yes, fine gold. You know, when God disciplines you, praise God, He's faithful to His word. <laughs> Say, thank you, God. You're not a liar. You're disciplining me. I'm under divine judgment because you're faithful to your word. And I know that also means when I repent, when I confess, when I'm restored to fellowship, you're going to be just as faithful. Praise God for that too. Anyway, above gold, above fine gold. 
Let's talk about the common bond for all humanity. Proverbs 22.2 The rich and the poor have a common bond. The common bond for all humanity. The Lord is the maker of them all. Yahweh is our maker. The common bond for all humanity, rich or poor. The richest guy in the world, the poorest guy in the world. They've got a lot of things that are different about them. But there's one thing that they have in common. They're in the image of God. God is their creator. They have the glory of humanity that has been vested into their their existence. The common bond for all humanity, rich or poor, is our position as the imagers of God created for His glory. And Proverbs addresses this a handful of times. In fact, twice prior to this chapter, there were strict warnings against abusing the poor. Abusing the poor is a mockery that God will not tolerate. So the Lord is the maker of them all. This is, uh, in a sense, this is the essence of the, uh, uh, the Declaration of Independence. Right? The, Thomas Jefferson wrote, all men are created equal. We hold this truth to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. And this is a self-evident truth. All right. Uh, let's look at Proverbs fourteen thirty-one. Proverbs fourteen thirty-one. He who oppresses the poor taunts his maker, but he who is gracious to the needy honors him. The spectrum of rich and poor—that's that's human. That's that's our dealings one with another. Okay, and uh, and it doesn't. The rich people aren't better than poor people, and poor people aren't better than rich people. We're on a financial spectrum like we're on a, a health spectrum. Some of us have better health, some of us have poorer health, and, and uh, everywhere else in between. And we have the, the, the transient conditions of the human experience. It doesn't change the, the, the reality of, of how we're constituted as, as God's creation. Of all God's creation, the galaxies, the universe, all the glories of, of everything in, in this physical existence, humanity is the pinnacle. Because humanity is the image of God. And so to oppress the poor, to, to abuse him because you can, that's an that's a arrogant attitude, that's a satanic attitude against the image of God. But to be gracious to the needy, that means you take it upon yourself then to be a conduit of the grace of God. You realize that you've received God's grace. You want to be a conduit. You want to receive God's grace and extend God's grace. You want to be an imitator of God. God is gracious. I want to be gracious. And so it's an honor to God. You know, it's it's the the honoring of of imitation, the honoring of of, uh, the flattery of imitation. It's the honoring of God to be gracious to the needy. Also 17.5. He who mocks the poor taunts his maker, and he who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. We cannot rejoice over these things. Maybe it's deserved suffering. Pray that he learns from it. Maybe it's undeserved suffering. Pray that, that God's glorified in it. But don't mock Him. 
Don't rejoice at the calamity. And this is uh, another good reason why I'm thankful that before we stand with the Lord at the great white throne judgment, we're going to stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ. Um, Because I freely admit, in my carnal moments, I might enjoy seeing somebody go to hell. Isn't that terrible? That's terrible. In my, when I'm in fellowship, I know better. <laughs> but still, how hard is it? But thank God we will already stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Sin is gone. Carnality is gone. Our thinking is conformed. We're, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So that when He can, uh, convenes the great white throne judgment and we're seated there with Him, Remember, it's multiple thrones. We're seated there with Him. And we watch the, uh, the fallen angels and the unbelievers cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. We're not going to be rejoicing at calamity. We're not going to be thrilled to see the lost condemned. We will rejoice at the glory of God. We will acknowledge the righteousness of their sentence. But God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and neither will we. Neither will we. So we should start that attitude now and not be mocking the poor, taunting our maker. All right, well, that's verse 1 and verse 2. We'll come back whenever we come back. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. Uh, We need wisdom for this. I need wisdom for this. Taking this trip, not taking this trip. Um, Can you back out five days before a trip, four days before a trip? Um, I don't want to. But am I stupid to, to get on the plane and go? What am I doing? Anyway, uh, need wisdom, so pray for that. And uh, we'll see the application that God makes. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for the Word of God and for your faithfulness, Father, because we acknowledge you. You do direct our steps. And uh, in all our ways, we acknowledge you. So uh, we know that on a faith basis we can, uh, uh, we can run with endurance the race that's set before us. So it's in your hands and uh, we ask for your wisdom to be made known and we ask for like-mindedness as we collectively see this prayer answered together. We thank you, Father, and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.